It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 12th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. MPs will vote in London this evening on Theresa May's Brexit deal. The meaningful vote will take place after high drama yesterday, which saw Leo Varadkar do a U-turn en route to Dublin Airport and Washington for the annual St. Patrick's Day celebrations. The Taoiseach went back to government buildings as the British Prime Minister headed to Brussels, where three new documents were published, which the Prime Minister claims gives legally binding assurances that the UK will not be trapped in the EU indefinitely. The Irish government seems to have a different interpretation of this in that it says there has been no change to the backstop. The Taoiseach Leo Radker spoke outside of government buildings earlier this morning when he gave this statement. As you know, Prime Minister May met with President Juncker in Strasbourg last night where they agreed an interpretive instrument on the withdrawal agreement and a joint statement on the political declaration on the future relationship between the European Union and the United Kingdom. Those documents were published last night. Documents are complementary to the withdrawal agreement and political declaration and aim to provide an additional layer of interpretation, clarification and elaboration to the United Kingdom ahead of a further vote in Westminster. We're aware that the United Kingdom has also published a unilateral declaration alongside the two joint documents agreed. In the context of tonight's vote in Westminster, the outcome from yesterday's meeting with Prime Minister May and President Juncker is positive. I hope and trust that the withdrawal agreement will now be endorsed by the House of Commons. In discussions with the UK, the Government has worked hand-in-hand with our EU partners and EU institutions, including the Commission and the task force led by Michel Barnier. In that work, we've insisted that the withdrawal agreement could not be rewritten and that the backstop arrangement, while intended to be temporary, must continue to apply unless and until it's replaced by future arrangements that can achieve the same objective, namely no hard border. However, we've also said that we'd be prepared to offer guarantees and further reassurances to the United Kingdom of our good faith and intentions Indeed, we've offered such reassurances on many occasions. The instrument agreed yesterday puts those assurances on a legal footing 
and represents an unambiguous statement by both parties of what has been agreed. It does not reopen the withdrawal agreement or undermine the backstop or its application. It says we will work together in good faith in pursuit of a future relationship that ensures that the objectives of the protocol, particularly the need to avoid a hard border, are met. We're also committed to exploring alternatives in a timely way in the event that the overall future relationship cannot be concluded in a satisfactory and timely manner. But it does not call into question that the backstop will apply unless and until better arrangements are agreed with all parties using good faith and best endeavours to that aim. So the options to ensure the avoidance of a hard border on the island of Ireland continue to correspond with those agreed as far back as the joint report in December 2017, which envisages these being achieved by one of three means. First, a comprehensive future relationship between the EU and the UK. Second, specific solutions. Or third, in the absence of agreed solutions, regulatory alignment, i.e. the backstop. The documents agreed yesterday reiterate our wish to establish a future partnership with the UK that is as close as possible and marks our commitment to ensure that negotiations on the future relationship can begin as soon as the United Kingdom leaves. The instrument agreed sets out in detail how we'll go about this important work. It also recalls the dispute resolution mechanisms in the withdrawal agreement that could be invoked were either party to demonstrate bad faith including the possibility of seeking a ruling from a panel of arbiters, or rather arbitrators. I hope that together with the joint statement on the political declaration, it will provide a basis on which we can move forward again. The withdrawal agreement represents a fair compromise by all sides, and the political declaration provides a strong framework for future work on the future relationship. And the further text agreed yesterday provide additional clarity, reassurance and guarantees sought by some to eliminate doubt or fears, however unreal, that the goal of some was to trap the UK indefinitely in the backstop. It is not. These doubts and fears can now be put to bed. The withdrawal agreement, as you know, provides for a transitional period running at least until the end of 2020, during which nothing will change. This is really important for exporters, businesses, employers, farmers and our fishermen. And regardless of the vote tonight, we've already secured the continuation of the common travel area, free movement of people north and south and between Britain and Ireland, the right to live, work, study, access, healthcare, housing, education, pensions and welfare in each other's countries as though we were citizens of both. And this is particularly important for citizens, students, cross-border workers and expatriates in both countries. Irish citizens in the European Union will, of course, or rather Irish citizens in Northern Ireland, will, of course, continue to be citizens of the European Union, no matter what happens. In many ways, Brexit has been a dark cloud over us for many months, and in particular the threat of no deal. A positive vote tonight can remove that cloud and restore confidence and optimism in Britain, Ireland and across the European Union. We now need to see the withdrawal agreement ratified by Westminster and the European Parliament without further delay so that we can get on with the important work of building a new relationship between the EU and the UK and between the UK and Ireland post-Brexit.
I now feel that for the remains of the day, we need to give MPs in Westminster the time and space to consider what is now on the table. And how MPs will vote in less than 10 hours from now remains unknown. The, the Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, speaking outside of uh, government buildings uh, this morning. Undoubtedly, the MPs will be looking uh, to the advice of uh, the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, and as to whether there is the prospect of the United Kingdom becoming trapped in the European Union indefinitely as a result of the deal that Mrs May has agreed with uh, the European Union. Some will say, as we'll be hearing later in the programme that the UK will not be trapped and others will say that this makes no change whatsoever. The Labour Party have already uh, said that they will be voting uh, against the deal in the House of Commons meaningful vote tonight but I'm sure MPs will heed what the Taoiseach said there and how the Irish government is standing firm and saying uh, that this does not reopen the withdrawal agreement and it does not undermine the backstop and that the backstop will apply unless or until such time that alternative arrangements are in place to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. We'll have more on that a little bit later on in the programme this morning. But let's go to the nurses' dispute now. And as you've been hearing, the contract for a new grade of nurse has been referred to the Labour Court by the trade unions involved. The Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation were to ballot members on the deal to Day, but that has been postponed because this contract is now deemed to be uh, insufficient. Uh, a view that has always been taken by the SIPTU trade union. Paul Bell, SIPTU Health Division organiser, is back in studio with us uh, this morning. Good, Good morning, morning to you, and thanks for coming back into us uh, today. Uh, and the main sticking point in this is how nurses will be expected to be flexible in their working hours. Yes, just Michael, just to, just in case any misunderstanding, SIPTU at this stage have not referred this matter uh, back to the Labour Court. Uh, in fact, the uh, Executive Committee for Nursing and Midwifery will meet today to discuss the contract, to, to discuss the next steps forward, and obviously to discuss if it's necessary to, to return to the Labour Court. Uh, and in what guise do we return to the Labour Court? Because we have to clarify, is the matter about clarification about the original Labour Court recommendation, which applies to SIP2 as it does to others, uh, and to understand if or if if there's another type of re- return to the mm. Labour Court, uh, there's some clarity to be gained uh, throughout the day. So we will work hard on that. Okay. Okay. But uh, to answer the main question, as far as SIPTU nurses and midwives are concerned, what the government have attempted to do uh, by getting itself involved in productivity negotiations is to action a smash and grab. Uh, this would have been tried during the terms of the Public Service Stability Agreement. And at that time, nurses and midwives uh, and uh, SIP2 and other organisations would have resisted getting into those kind of conversations because of the impact it would have on the nursing and midwifery uh, fraternity. All right. And uh, you were here at the beginning of the month telling us about the concerns you had about this contract and how nurses could be moved in the middle of a a shift from one department to a completely different institution and how their working hours and arrangements could vary over periods of time. Well, we always feared that government would present what we were referred to as a horror story for nurses and midwives uh, once they had an opportunity to have a negotiation under productivity. we, having engaged with the uh, management, which is represented by the Health Service Executive, the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure and, for- and Reform, uh, we basically identified that there are four to five 
main areas mm. where government believe that uh, this particular pay award uh, can be self-financed. Uh, but the pain of that across the board, uh, I believe, is, is, is too difficult for our members to sustain. You're talking about one of the elements there, which is basically redeployment. <clears throat> now, we would have agreed in the Public Service Stability Agreement that with consultation uh, and the appropriate information, members could be redeployed within, a, I think it was a 43-kilometre radius. However, this proposal says, basically, and I'll give an example, that a nurse or a midwife in, uh, in Our Lady of Lords Hospital at the beginning of shift could be told, you're in this hospital uh, today uh, for the next three or four hours, and, and the next thing you're going to be in you know, the mm. county hospital in Dundalk, or you're going to be in St Mary's in the Dublin Road uh, as part of your shift cycle. It also d- gives direction that... Uh, uh, who would decide this? Uh, well, this is the, the other the point. It seems to be that these rest with the these decisions rest with the decision of management uh, and that there's really no understanding of how those issues would come about. Mm. But the uh, government are very strong on this issue, so strong that we have deep concerns because there's some degree of ambiguity mm. of how people actually get about in their daily work. Mm. And it's a very alarming development. Uh, at the end of the day, yeah. we understand that clinical needs are very are paramount, but this may not suit those But d- d- does it mean that if you work in Drogheda, let's say, on a Monday and Tuesday and Navin uh, on uh, Wednesday and Thursday mm-hmm. in February, that it would be the same in March and the same again in April? No, because according to the contract, uh, these moves are at the total discretion of the management. So this could change any time? Any time. Mm. And the efforts over the uh, weekend uh, to basically get a clear understood position of how this would operate with the management has mm. failed because what has happened is that the management side representing government in these negotiations have set out these four to five points mm. and are rigid on them and that's what we've been so concerned about over the weekend in our talks uh, under the auspices of the Workplace Relations Commission. This is a, a, a total move from the normal type of redeployment mm. uh, because there's a huge instability. Uh, the, the nurse uh, coming on duty in the morning would not actually know if this mm. is the roster for the day or are there going to be other changes. The uncertainty, uh, the concern about travelling and so forth, we think that the government need to revisit that and they really need to understand the issues that people walking in that, uh, walking in that profession would have with that proposal. Right, and when it comes to the shifts or the length of the shifts, yes. uh, you told us the last time round that these could vary and vary greatly. Four, six, eight, ten, twelve-hour shifts. How will that work? Yeah, that's a very good question, Michael. Uh, how does it work? Uh, but first of all, the principle here is that uh, at the management's discretion, uh, a shift pattern within a roster can be actioned that commits a nurse a midwife to work a four-hour shift mm. or up to a twelve-hour shift on a given day. Mm. Uh, which means that some people could walk six hours. Four and could that hours, change from week to week? That could change from week to week, mm. because the contract itself. And do the uh, days of the week matter uh, in this? Uh, in, uh, well, according to the contract, the contract is very clear that these where, where your roster mm. would be set out, uh, it would advise that these are the hours that would be mm. walked in that given week. So you work thirty nine hours a week. Thirty nine hours a week, at the discretion of yeah. the employer, and that's how it works. And that could be. Three four hour shifts could be, which would be twelve hours, yeah, and then followed by two twelve hour shifts. If that is, if that is left as is, as expressed in the contract, uh, that's how that could be operated. Uh, and the trouble with, with 
that approach is that there's so much ambiguity, uncertainty, it would be very, very unclear of mm. how a nursing professional would actually understand how their roster was going to work from day to day and from week to week. But again, Michael, uh, government have approached these negotiations on the basis of saying, if we are getting involved in uh, addressing pay issues, uh, we believe, and that's what the government mm. is saying, we believe that we have a right to action all these things in relation to demonstrating uh, verifiably that the, the cost savings are made and that this agreement is funded. And we cost think that, savings. And we think mm. that this is too high a price Increased to productivity, cost savings. Uh, these yeah. are, are, are not the terms uh, that people would have expected when the nursing strike was called off. Well, in fairness, Michael, I'm very cautious to comment mm. on, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the strike because of the, I know, the, but, that was a comrade I mean, in the INMO. And it was the INMO that. who said that they were striking on the grounds of increasing recruitment, uh, retention of nurses and improved pay. They wanted yeah. a 12% pay increase as I recall. Now we're hearing words that you're using now such as cost savings and increased productivity. The INMO said yesterday uh, that this would result in some of the most insecure jobs in Ireland. It's pretty confusing for people listening to us this morning. Well, at the end of the day, you're correct to say this engagement, and in fairness, with SIP2 also, has always about been the recruitment and retention of nursing professionals. Remember, there still has to be a nursing review, uh, which is recommended within the Public Service mm. Pay Commission document, uh, which I think is basically understood by the government side. Yes, that will have to go ahead. Mm. Uh, and we will participate in that once we can agree the terms of reference. Uh, but where we've ended up now is that we think that the government are acting in a manner that air members did not really appreciate in the lead up how, to the negotiation. How are you in this position? How, how are your members in this position? Because uh, you didn't have a, an issue that you made known publicly, at least. Uh, you didn't take strike action. You didn't take industrial action. Uh, and suddenly now uh, you're in this dispute, it would seem. Well, we're not in dispute. I want to make that quite clear. Uh, we uh, have made a quite... Um, well, you've been offered a, a contract which... Oh, well, uh, I'll go to uh, that, Michael. First of all, air members have a right mm. uh, to reject that contract mm. and receive the protections of the Public Service Stability Agreement. Mm. Uh, let's be very clear about that. And that's a discussion that air nursing and midwifery executives... But you didn't seek today. this contract. This is the point. No, we have not sought mm-hmm. this contract. It is part of, uh, of what has happened in the Labour Court up to now. Mm. Uh, but we are very clear about, about air, air members... Uh, have certain rights, and we've clarified that with uh, with the uh, the management side. But just to go back to the point, the contract does not achieve uh, the objective of bringing about a situation whereby the recruitment and retention of nursing professionals is advanced. We always had a very clear position that we wanted to get into a negotiation that would lead to that. What we see being proposed here from the government does not address those issues. Mm. Uh, I don't know if they appreciate that or not, but we spend from Friday evening, Saturday evening and Sunday evening uh, communicating this to the uh, to the employer through the Workplace Relations Commission uh, and the government are seemingly steadfast that these are the core principles and objectives that they wish to achieve. Uh, we believe our members cannot afford that. Okay. We're not convinced that the Irish Health Service can afford that. And can I just make one point? We are committed to Sloucher Care. But Sloucher Care has to receive a huge amount of funding for the, from the mm. government. And that will also involve other groups, other adult health professionals and other workers within the health service to make that a success. 
uh, a lot of the, the contract and document that has been put to us talks about Sloan Care as if it's going to happen tomorrow. It's not. We would like it to happen mm. tomorrow, of course, but it's not. Yeah, and everybody would like to see four billion allocated to it. Absolutely. All right, we've got to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now back uh, to the high drama of uh, the last uh, 24 hours. Our political editor Eileen Brophy is on the line. Good morning Eileen, thanks uh, for joining us. We were just listening to the Taoiseach speaking outside of government buildings but Leo Vratker shouldn't have been in Dublin. He should actually be in Washington now. Yeah, he had to cut short, obviously, uh, his visit to Washington, so he was meant to fly out yesterday. Uh, and a lot of civil servants were actually at the airport and had to be called back uh, when this all broke. Now, Leo Vratko would have known that something was happening yesterday because he was on the phone to uh, Europe or to Strasbourg all day. There was phone calls going back and forth all of the time. So I think he probably knew uh, earlier that he wouldn't be able to go, but nobody knew whether an announcement was going to be made last night or not and and it was made so all the civil servants and all the ministers um, had to have um, a meeting Uh, so they had their meeting as you know and Mm. they left government buildings and came back I suppose give them time to think and also give time uh, for the press conference um, of uh, with Theresa May and Jean-Claude so um, Basically, they were just waiting to see for that press conference. So it was it was this morning before the Overadker spoke to the press. Okay, uh, uh, not sure if it's a, a face-saving exercise uh, for Mrs. May, uh, but she was promising legally binding assurances uh, that the United Kingdom wouldn't remain trapped in uh, the European Union. The Taoiseach uh, seemed very relaxed uh, this morning, talking uh, about the withdrawal agreement and the backstop, saying uh, that what happened yesterday doesn't require the withdrawal agreement to be reopened and it doesn't undermine the backstop and the backstop will be uh, applied unless or until alternative arrangements are put in place on the island of Ireland. Uh, So what next? Uh, Because he said it's time to stay quiet now and leave MPs to decide their own fate and to participate in this meaningful vote in uh, the House of Commons uh, this evening. Will the Taoiseach travel? Uh, I think the Taoiseach will probably travel. Um, he will wait, I suppose, for the for the vote today. What day is today? Today is Wednesday. It's only Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday so it's exactly. Thursday that he's actually meeting um, the President of the United States. So uh, he'll probably wait and see, um, you know, what, what the outcome of that. Um, there's very little more that he can do um, anyway. So he could, in fact, go. The important thing is now that the tarnished uh, stays put. Um, he's, as you know. Know, just going to Europe mm. anyway because uh, he so that because it was a, they all thought that he may be called back anyway and he is he is going to Europe so he's just in Germany France so um, he he could come back and then of course uh, the finance minister Pascal Donoghue uh, he's only going to London so he can he could also uh, be be called back now Charlie Flanagan we know is going to New York but there's no really rush on Charlie Flanagan going there as Minister for Justice. So between the whole lot, um, I think they they will work this out. I mean, Mm. what happens now, I suppose, like when you think about it, I mean, you'd have to hand it to Theresa May. I mean, she was like a dog with a bone. She went over to Europe day after day, week after week, month after month, and was slapped down and sent back with nothing. And she called their bluff. And she got something last night. So you'd have to hand it to her. And I don't know whether um, 
her MPs will see it that way or not. But certainly, I think the big thing now is we all have to wait and see. The, the lawyers, obviously, are going through this. So the AG, uh, Sir Geoffrey Cox, it will all depend on him. Remember, he has held um, th- this together for quite a long time. And it's probably because of him uh, that a lot of them, that it has never got through because he has always looked for extra um, assurances and a legally binding uh, for the backstop. So it all depends on what he has to say today. The DUP have been very quiet and of course they have this agreement with the government. Mm. Uh, they prop them up the same way as Fianna Fáil do it here. So we have to wait and see what, what they're going to do but there's a strong feeling that they won't say anything until they see what the AG has to say. And so, they will come under pressure I think given comments uh, made uh, by uh, Rees Mogg uh, this morning saying uh, that if uh, they were agreeable to the arrangements on uh, the backstop that it would hold a lot of weight with MPs who've had uh, their own hesitations. That's right, it absolutely would. So they they hold the key which is un- uh, unbelievable but they do. Um, so they hold the key and I suppose we have to, as I said the lawyers uh, will have to have a look at this and see what they come up with. There's a lot of legal jargon in it anyway. Um, so I mean Basically, mm. uh, like Leo Varadkar is saying, you know, that always, they always uh, were going to give assurances. They were always going to be helpful uh, and they were going to give assurances, um, you know, for the, mm-hmm. for the good of both countries. Um, nothing has changed, he says, uh, you know, that there's still freedom of movement. People can go there to work. People can go to study or, and mm-hmm. can come back here to study. So he's very positive about it. But he made a very short statement, really and now he's keeping his mouth shut which is probably a very good thing to do. Okay, well no doubt Brexit will dominate uh, the week here and in America with uh, the Taoiseach's visit to Washington and uh, undoubtedly he'll be discussing the implications of it with the American authorities but what else will happen because it's a a great day to be Irish uh, on the 17th or on Thursday of uh, this week as uh, the case may be, a great opportunity for the Irish as we showcase uh, all of uh, the great things about this country to uh, one of uh, the biggest countries in the world. The Taoiseach will meet with the Vice President for breakfast, then with the President and then he'll be on Capitol Hill. What else will they be talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously I think trade is the big thing. Um, I, I think we all know that it would be um, very... that. That, the, 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 that Trump would like to see no agreement um, because that would help uh, um, uh, America. So he'd be glad that, you know, Britain uh, would, would leave without an agreement. So um, obviously Leo Varadkar is going to brief him on, uh, you know, on how all of this will work and what, what is actually happening. But from our point of view, trade is a huge thing. But also tourism. I mean, where in the world, like, would any country get what we're getting all over the country? I mean, the whole world is turning green mm. for a day. And I mean, I think that's fascinating. Mm. Um, and we're, like, we're, there's a lot of, an awful lot of our um, TDs, uh, our ministers and our junior ministers are going to the United States and all over the United States. We're going to every single country in Europe. Uh, and that's to show our commitment to Europe. Um, and then, of course, uh, China is very important uh, as well to us. Uh, so we are going to, uh, going to Australia. You should look at the amount of people we have working in Australia, New mm. Zealand. I mean, we're just going all over the place.
place. And everywhere we go will turn green. There's going to be, you know, rivers turning green. There's going to be um, state buildings turning green. Like, I mean, I just think this is fascinating mm. that, that that can happen um, for a little country like Ireland. Well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, well, I would think there's no doubt about it. But of course, uh, people give out every year, particularly about the government uh, trips abroad or these politicians going abroad to celebrate St. Patrick's Day and they call it junkets uh, and that it's a waste of time and money. But I, I know from all of the years that we've spoken about this, Eileen, you wouldn't yeah. buy into that argument. I wouldn't buy into that. I mean, I have been, I think, six years in a row. I've been to Washington, New York, um, uh, and all over, not, not all over America, mm. but, you know, like in Boston uh, as well and in different places with different Taoiseach. And I tell you something, it is no junket. Um, it's it's really like you're working day and night. Remember, for for journalists here, you, you, you've got to get back if a time difference. Mm. So they also, you can see that the ministers work very, very hard. It's non-stop mm. um, over there. I know that last year it cost 260,000 and people are complaining about that. They're complaining about, uh, you know, staying in top-class hotels. Uh, but like, to be honest with you, when people are away for a short space of time like that and have very little time, you need to have a decent place to stay. And, you know, a five-star hotel or a, or a four-star hotel in some mm. of these countries mm. wouldn't be the same as a five-star uh, here. So I think um, they are entitled to have a decent uh, place to stay when, when they go over. But I'll tell you one thing, from what I've seen, they work extremely hard. Uh, and what about the people in uh, these places, uh, the ordinary people celebrating St. Patrick's Day? When you're in Washington or New York or wherever you've been, Eileen, uh, are they a little bit more civilised uh, than we are at home when it seems as though everybody goes on the lash? And, well, no, because a lot of a lot of people would be working um, abroad now this year it's on a Sunday, so uh, they wouldn't be. Uh, certainly in some places, and I won't name some of the places, but some of the places they go on the lash. Um, I think uh, they 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 prove they're Irish. But I know in Australia and uh, places like that, because I've been to Australia, not with the government, just uh, on my own bat, with family there, uh, there's a lot of organised um, events uh, for the Irish, that the Irish organise, and uh, they go and they celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And of course, you know, we do have a bad name for, for drinking, but I didn't see anybody, you know, causing trouble or, or anything like that. And it was a fantastic day. And also, not alone did the Irish celebrate but the Australians celebrated with them and, and other nationalities celebrated with them so um, I think it may be, may be nearer to home uh, yes that they, they do go in the lash and, and I have been ab- abroad in you know places like Spain or that and I, I'd be I'd I wouldn't want to be letting people know I was Irish, uh, to be honest with you, with the way that some people behave. But mm. that's going to happen everywhere, isn't it? OK, Eileen, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning, as always. Our political editor, Eileen Brophy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Child Care Law Reporting Project has published a, a national survey of child care in district courts around the country after visiting 35 courts in uh, the country. The service has seen uh, variation in uh, the services uh, that are available to people. Many courts are overcrowded, judges overworked, and indeed uh, there's very long lists in a lot of these courts. Uh, they say they make that this makes the case 
case for a dedicated family law court. And uh, we're joined uh, by Carl Coulter, who's uh, director with uh, the Child Care Law Reporting Project. Good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. There's a, a lot of concern about the conditions uh, that some people endure in some of uh, the district courts. Yes, uh, I mean, there is a very wide variation, as you said, uh, in some, in about nine courts, particularly those in the larger cities. Uh, we found that there were dedicated childcare days and uh, where that where it was possible in some of the newer courthouses, they took place also in separated courtrooms so that there was a, a certain amount of privacy as well as there being proper time available for those kind of cases. But they were a minority. That was just nine out of the 35 cases we saw, just about 25%. About half of all of the courts we attended had childcare in with other family law. Now, that's uh, what is known as private family law when there's a dispute between individuals, which could be about maintenance, possibly domestic violence or access to children, uh, those kind of issues. And those lists tend to be very long in Mm. One court, there were 126 family law cases on the list, of which about 10 were childcare. So this means that there's an awful lot of people there. People um, don't have uh, places to sit down. There's no privacy. And those awaiting hearings on care applications, uh, which are made in childcare cases, Mm -hmm. uh, they can be waiting for very long periods of time, as indeed can the witnesses. But uh, not just other family law cases, uh, sometimes crime cases, general cases. In another quarter of the cases, there was family law, and including childcare law, listed along with crime, uh, public order, uh, traffic, all those other kind of cases that turn up in the district court, where uh, childcare should be separated off. I mean, according to the law, they should be heard at a separate time or a separate venue. That doesn't happen in a certain number of district courts, just because of the sheer mm. volumes of cases that are going through the courts. And, and you say that this can lead uh, to tense and aggressive scenes, which are, are well, witnessed sometimes by children, I take it. Well, potentially it could, because, uh, I mean, first of all, it should be said, children do not themselves attend child protection proceedings. If their views are being heard, they're conveyed to the court by guardians ad litem um, or by uh, you know other appropriate people, mainly by guardians ad litem. Yeah. Occasionally, the judge might speak to the child, but then he will do so in his own chamber. So children themselves generally are not there. Um, very, very small children, of course, if their parents don't have childcare, might be there in buggies or in prams. But the parents themselves are already stressed and really should not be in a situation which could expose yeah. them to further stress uh, where there's that kind of crowding and uh, and potentially, um, I, I'm not saying that because yeah. generally speaking, there... Uh, there is a guard present and uh, things happen relatively peacefully around the courts. But we have seen incidents um, where the judge has been attacked in Dublin family court on one occasion and in the circuit family court somebody arrived with what appeared to be a weapon, a gun, uh, only in recent months. So there is potential for tension and really it is not an appropriate place for people who are facing very big decisions about their children um, to have to be exposed to something like that. And you give an example of one court on one day where there was just one judge who had 139 cases in front of them, uh, ranging across the board uh, from childcare to family law to general crime and civil law. Uh, an impossible
difficult situation. None of us would welcome the prospect of sitting through all of that, particularly if you were called last. Uh, and regardless of how long you are there, uh, it could be difficult uh, to get a, a drink of water or a sandwich. Exactly. I, I mean, the, the conditions in a lot of the courts, in, there are not even water or drinking fountains in some. Uh, and, um, I mean, anybody who waits in a hospital will be aware that they mm. can usually get a drink of water. There's usually a vending machine. So that even if you're waiting, you can get some kind of basic comforts. They don't exist in a lot of our courts. And yet you can't leave the vicinity of the court because you don't know when your case is going to be called. I, I take it we're relatively... Uh, better off uh, locally here in Louth and me. The, it seems as though the conditions are, are not as bad as they are in other parts of the country. No, uh, I mean Dundalk has a nice, uh, you know, a, a beautiful courthouse. In fact, and uh, there is uh, it's quite spacious inside. Um, there are waiting areas, though the seating could be more. <laughs> there could be more seating. I think it, a lot of people who attend the court will probably agree. But there are still quite long lists. Um, on the day we attended there was 60 family law cases on the list of which 11 were childcare Um, so that uh, even then I think it would be very useful if there was um, a family, a specialist family division which is what we're calling for um, to serve all of those areas. And there's there's three courts in Loud. I think uh, Dundalk, Trahad and RD, but most of the cases are heard in Dundalk. But most of the childcare cases are now being heard in Dundalk, uh, I, I, I think, uh, in, rather than in Drogheda or the other courts. And, in fact, one of the things I would hope to see is that if you do have a separate family division, which is urgently required uh, for the courts, that... There be designated centres which are suitable. You won't have childcare. It couldn't possibly in every court in the country if you have a separate division. But I think people would be happy to travel a certain distance if they knew that they would get a proper attention. There would be plenty of time for their case to be heard. The physical conditions would be comfortable and above all that they would have privacy so they could discuss their case with their lawyers in appropriate uh, consulting rooms rather than having to do so in a public area. Uh, and is that what's happening in Mead, Carol? Because cases in Mead are heard in the new courthouse in Navan. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, again, it isn't as, as crowded or it isn't as uh, bad as we have seen, particularly County Kildare is particularly badly crowded. Um, but it's not, even where the physical conditions are a bit better, like in Navan, for example, mm. there's, just, there's just the one courtroom on the first floor there is a designated uh, waiting area. Childcare cases are still included on the fa- in the general family law list. And when we attended, there were 59 cases that day. That is a very long list. Childcare should be separated out and heard separately. Um, so it, it's a matter of the organisation rather than just the physical conditions. It, it, there should be specialist judges mm. who only are hearing family law for a certain period of time so they can upskill receive the kind of specialist training that they might need and things like child development and so on and so that they're not having to juggle childcare and other family law in with every other item that comes before the district courts. There were nearly 12,000 applications in childcare in 2017, the last year that the court service has uh, statistics Mm. on. That is a huge number of cases and that's just childcare, that's not other kinds of family law. So there's a very strong case for that area of law to be separated off and given to 
a specialist core of judges who would hear them in special centres. Okay, Carol, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Carol Coulter is uh, the Director of uh, the Child Care Law Reporting Project. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. But before you come to the comments that have been coming to you today, Marie, perhaps you'd tell us your own story because uh, you'd uh, a terrible encounter by all accounts yesterday. You were out for a walk with one of your friends in your local neighbourhood. Tell us what happened. That's right, Michael. I normally go for a walk after work. Uh, every day and it was about half three in the day and we were coming uh, along the side of the Glen coming from the Forest Park area of the town which would be along the Flaxmill Lane area and we noticed a man, he was only standing maybe about ten yards away from us in at the side of the Glen um, and he had uh, unfortunately he was flashing mm. so it was a bit unsettling My God, mm. To huh. say the least. Yeah. And you know mm. something, when, when we looked first, we actually thought we were seeing things because it's not something really you hear of much nowadays. Well, certainly I haven't in a long, long time. And in that vicinity, it's it's a very open area. It was quite near the road and the footpath. So mm. you weren't going to get away from not seeing and it's an area, if people know it, that's used by an awful lot of school children going to and from school. And I suppose that's really why I'm raising it today, because I'm very aware. I know my own girls, when they went to the local school, they used to go through the Glen from you know to get mm. from school to home. And it, that's the case of a lot of boys and girls. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And a lot of dog walkers and uh, a lot of uh, people use it for recreational reasons and that sort of thing, because it's a green area in the middle of uh, the town. But when you say he was flashing asked you what do you mean I mean obviously he was uh, exposing himself uh, right. but, but what did he do did he pull down his trousers or did he open the white he, Macintosh coat he, or? Ha- he had it out in his hands my god yes mm. and just was standing there looking at us and it was very disconcerting I'm sure it was yeah now he never mm. said a, he never uttered a word mm. and to be honest I would have thought I'd be quite you know a bit of, bit of bravado in a case like that that mm. I'd maybe approach somebody or say but I didn't because I feel nowadays you just don't know what to expect mm. from somebody and just at that time there was nobody else in that particular area at that time only our, the two of us and himself so you wouldn't have felt maybe brave enough or you wouldn't know if somebody could mm. you know come after you okay. or produce yep. a knife or something mm-hmm. like that It's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, you, so you were con- you were concerned for your own yes, safety. Obviously, yes. it was uh, an intimidating situation to find yourself in. You're concerned for other people. Uh, you've reported it to the guardian. That's have you? correct. Okay, yes, yeah. we didn't. Um, it wasn't. We did. My phone. Uh, my battery was gone on my phone, so it was after. We kept going. We just went straight by him, and we continued our, on a walk. And when I got to the phone, then I phoned the guardian, and they had received a complaint already. They told us. Okay. So mm. obviously, we weren't the only people who they had, uh, you know, who he had flashed to, if you like. Well, hopefully the guards have uh, dealt with it uh, since. uh, But have you a description of this man that you can give us? To be honest with you, Michael, we don't because we were that anxious (laughs) to get by. And I know you laugh, but but in that moment, I didn't want to make eye contact. Uh, I, I was quite unsettled and I said to my friend, look, just keep walking. Don't give him any opportunity to say anything to us. Uh, or that, so we don't. He had a jelly bag down over a good bit of his face, um, so it was quite hard to see and you, you know mm. to, to see him. But I do, I, I have a feeling he was around the, the, the kind of 40 year old that kind of mark. It wasn't somebody that was very young, yeah, or it didn't mm. appear to me to be somebody who was very old. Okay, so this wasn't a teenage prank anyway, this was it didn't appear something to, else, to whatever be. it was, yeah. But as I said, mm. I didn't really take time. I was quite unsettled mm. and we just kind of kept going as fast as we could by mm. uh, because that's the way we were feeling. Okay, by the sounds of it, uh, and who knows, but by the sounds of it, it's most likely somebody who needs, needs help themselves. But your concern is for other people uh, and uh, that they don't encounter this individual and come to any harm. That's right, and particularly children. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, because even though we're of an age uh, that we're a bit older, mm. it's still not nice. Okay. Well, hopefully the guards have dealt with it by this stage, but uh, people should be aware that uh, this happened at half past three yesterday afternoon yes. in the Glen in Drogheda, and uh, perhaps some caution is advised there. All right. Uh, let's go back to what uh, you've been doing yes. at work this morning, and that's uh, taking some calls amongst other things. Yes. And it's Brexit at the moment that's dominating shame is from Dundalk uh, th- I think they should have interpreters uh, Michael to explain the language of Brexit because they don't exactly make it easy to understand they say, seem to be beating around the bush without really saying things in relation to these changes last night am I to take it if the UK don't feel the EU is acting in good faith then they can unilaterally walk away from the backstop. Well, or, or is that just my interpretation? Well, I don't <laughs> think it is uh, what's being said. Uh, and, I mean, we're talking about uh, complicated legal language uh, and different uh, interpretations. Uh, as I understand it, no, that is not the case, uh, that uh, the UK will not be able to walk away unilaterally. There is an arbitration process in the original agreement. Uh, there's been some clarifications and assurances that have been added onto that uh, to make MPs feel better about themselves. But to a, a large extent, it seems to be a face-saving exercise for the PM. 
Michael, should Leo even be going to the States at all? We need our leader here at this time. Who knows what is going to happen in Westminster tonight? Mm. He needs to stay at home and let somebody else go to the States. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's uh, the case, really. You want to let him go, Michael. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know really what difference would make. Uh, I mean, they'll either vote for it or uh, against it tonight. If they vote for it, well, that sort of is the end of the conversation for now. If they vote against it, then we have another vote tomorrow and another vote again on Thursday. Uh, and where it goes from there, well, God knows, uh, because uh, there is a huge dilemma if uh, the next two votes are, are passed. Uh, it's quite possible that that will be the case, uh, but uh, it could be uh, enough uh, to get Mrs May over the line tonight. Uh, and if that is uh, the case, uh, I certainly wouldn't think there's any need for the Taoiseach uh, to be here. And it's a great opportunity for the Irish. Yes, Liam says he thought there was never going to be any budging in relation to the backstop. But now it seems it, even though we are being told differently. However, this... This allows the UK to walk away, does it not? We have been, we are being told this is not a rewriting mm. of the agreement, but it is additional documentation. So that changes it, does it not? No, I don't, I, 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 again, <laughs> as I understand it, I don't think it does. Um, what is the DUP saying about all of this? Well, they're saying we'll think about it. <laughs> As yeah. Rania, mm-hmm. Is it enough to convince them to vote for the deal? If this happens, at least it will put off a hard border, at least for the time being. Uh, your speaker, Eileen Brophy, is right. Theresa May has stuck this out, but will be interesting to see can she get the deal through tonight. We may not have a hard border, but it will still be uncertain if the UK do leave the EU in 17 days' time, says Paula. A lot of businesses don't know what to expect. Mm. Uh, Anne says, thankfully, there could be a resolution in sight, re-Brexit, and we can go back to the business of running this country. It's been dominating everything for far too long. Yeah, well, So say all of us. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> I think that what might happen happen is uh, that they leave and then they'll work out uh, the fine print over the course of uh, the next year and a half or whatever the case may be up to the end of 2020 if not beyond that Uh, but hold that thought for a moment because another issue has uh, dominated the minds of many people particularly people locally and people in Dundalk and uh, the issue of radicalised people coming back to this country from other countries such as Syria has certainly uh, been on the minds of most people in all of Ireland. Uh, this follows uh, the case of Lisa Smith, uh, who is in a refugee camp after fleeing her uh, home in Syria and as to whether she should be allowed to return here or not. Ross Leahy has been out and about and we'll hear now from people in Drogheda and Dundalk uh, about how they feel about all of this. Well I'm ex- examining myself and I don't think she should be allowed back because she knew what she was getting into. She's been in the Defence Forces. She chose to do what she did and I don't think she should be welcome back here with welcome arms. I'm in two minds about do you give them a second chance? But if you do give them a second chance, you have to be very cautious and uh, take care that they're not rationalising some other people. So why did they go in the first place? Are they just using Ireland for a safe place? No. No. They made a choice in the first place and uh, make a bed you're lying in. Of course, because her husband's dead. So she can come back. Personally, no. I don't think they should be. Um, They've gone to Syria for whatever reasons. If they want to live in a war zone, uh, stay there. Uh, The country's bad enough without bringing radicalised people back on board. I think there should be 
big like assessment procedures put in place for these people to make sure like that they're making safe choices and able to like make right decisions whenever they do come back but definitely don't rule them out in the first place like everybody should be given the option of course of course everyone makes mistakes mm. yeah as long as you didn't kill and whatever you know everyone makes mistakes just like our government is yeah. <laughs> but yeah everyone makes mistakes so why not you know yeah let her home she was born rare here so my opinion on it that she, she should not be uh, put back no she should not be put back she, she, she chose to go over no one asked her she chose to go over and that was it well I think if you welcome her home uh, an awful lot of people went out there not knowing what they were getting into so I think she should be given a chance I, I don't think she should be brought back if that's what she's doing no I think she should be allowed like go home, come home, uh, come home to her family. Well, well, she's Irish. I don't see how you can stop her coming in. I certainly wouldn't allow her to go out walking around the streets. Like I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love like I'd, if I were an, an official, I'd want to know where she's going, what she's been doing, why she did it. At the end of the day, these people are terrorists. You like it, you love it, you hate it. Doesn't matter. She's Irish, French, English. It doesn't matter either. Which can't really, I don't think it can stop, uh, take away an Irish citizenship and just go, you're not Irish anymore. Not fair, maybe. I think she should be allowed back, really, too, to be with her family. Like, mm. she's no one really over there, mm. no family members. Like, do you know what? I think she should be, you know, bring her right now, her child home with her, if that's what she wants. No, definitely not. Because um, she made the choice to go over there mm-hmm. and to join them. So if you make that choice, you shouldn't be allowed back in because you're a danger to the country. I think it would be pretty similar to the teen in England who went uh, to mm. England. I think that if you turn your back in your country, you go against your countrymen. Mm. Um, I think that that should be you blocked from coming back. Ooh, that's a real difficult one. Um, I definitely think it's not Syria's responsibility to kind of keep her. Mm. And she is like Ireland's responsibility. Mm. So I do feel it's up to us to kind of do something about it. Mm. Take her back. Maybe put her in prison or do something like that but it's definitely our responsibility to do something it's not something we can push on to Syria because it's not really their fault that we produce the radical I would say if they're de-radicalised yes but if not if they're a danger to society no there you go. The thoughts of people in Dundalk and Drogheda and our thanks to those of you who took time out to speak with Ross Leakey for us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the increases in minimum wage payments to people reduced inequality between the highest earners and the lowest earners. Those in the top 10% and those in the lowest 10% of earnings by up to 8%. But it did little to improve the incomes of households. So is there a real benefit to it? Let's discuss this now with Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who introduced uh, the increase, uh, the first of the increases, with uh, Neil Macdonald as well, who's uh, Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Good morning to you both and thanks for joining us. Uh, If it did little to increase uh, the income of households, uh, Gerald Nash, is there much point to it? Um, there absolutely is. Um, it's not just about households, Michael. It's about uh, impacting on individual workers. And I've always believed, as you know, only too well, and as your listeners know, that work should always pay. And that's why I set up the Low Pay Commission in 2015. And one of the primary objectives of the Low Pay Commission in legislation is to use an evidence base to research and recommend to government what the rate of the national minimum wage should be uh, each year. And what this report tells us is that 
the minimum wage increase that I introduced in early 2016 has done a number of things. Uh, the first uh, thing it has done is narrow the gap between the top 10% of earners and the bottom 10% of earners by 8%. And it's also had a particular impact for, for younger workers. I said at the time as well, Michael, when I introduced this legislation and brought the minimum wage increase in, uh, the 50 cent increase uh, on the 1st of January 2016, that would not just be um, the those who are on the rate of the national minimum wage alone that would benefit from the minimum wage increase, but uh, those who are earning maybe up to 11.50, 12 euros an hour. So this ESRI report carried out on behalf of the Low Grade Commission, an independent report, has has illustrated very clearly that about 25% of all yeah. earners saw a boost in their income. So remember when we looked at the minimum wage, Michael, you asked me the question about um, household uh, income uh, and its impact on household income. Uh, it is generally not the case that uh, an individual on the minimum wage is the primary uh, breadwinner, as it were, in the household. Uh, they could be a younger person, there's a preference of women as mm. well. Uh, yeah. or, or a, a spouse or a parent who's paying the rent or the mortgage, as the case may be. Let me go to Neil MacDonald because that 50 cent increase brought it from 8.65 to 9.15. There's been further increases to 9.25 to 9.55. It's currently at 9.80 an hour. What has that meant for your overall pay bill? Well, well, obviously, I mean, the reduction uh, that Jed Nash refers to there, the reduction in inequality is an unqualified good thing. Uh, uh, It's not the sort of thing we object to. The, the difficulty, as we see it, is that the, the really significant problem uh, in cost of living, most especially for the low paid or those who rely on the minimum wage, is not the level of our minimum wage or the living wage. It's the fact that we have such a high cost base in this country. And quite frankly, giving someone 25 cents an hour on the minimum wage, it, it will be effectively meaningless for people in an economy which really does have some of the highest costs in Europe. I mean, our minimum wage now, our legal minimum wage in Ireland, is second only to Luxembourg. But our cost of living is the second highest in the EU, and it's actually higher than uh, the cost of living living in Luxembourg, believe it or not. And and if you look across at the cost base, and this is the cost Mm. base that the typical low-paid worker has to endure in this country, Food, beverage, clothing were the second most expensive in Europe. Energy, furniture, household, uh, household materials were the second most uh, expensive in Europe. Transport, communications, restaurants, hotels were the second most expensive in Europe. So quite frankly, what the, the real misgiving we have about this is we are failing to tackle the cost of living for those people and most particularly the cost of housing. And in tinkering around at the margins with the minimum wage, we're pretending that we can pass those costs on to employers, and it can't be done. Does it the last, feed it, I'll leave you with this uh-huh. on, on Michael, is you look at average rentals for uh, studios or one beds. In Berlin, you can get one for €840 Euros a month. In Paris, you can get a studio or a mm-hmm. one bed for 780 to 1100 a month. Mm-hmm. In Nationwide, including Dublin, in Ireland, it's it's the average is 1,347, and in Dublin, it's 1,500 to 2,000. Yeah. So we're codding ourselves. Yeah. We well, well, people used to say when, when you're in certain parts of the world, don't buy a cup of coffee because of the price of it. Now it seems very cheap because we come from one of the most expensive countries in the world. But uh, does this feed into the cost of living? Uh, people are earning more. Are they being charged more? Yeah, yes, they are. And the cost of services is 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 particularly high in Ireland. 
Um, but but the thing is, you know, the, this isn't is me saying this. The National Competitiveness Competitiveness Council is telling anyone that's willing to listen, and unfortunately, they don't appear to be willing to listen in the Oireachtas. That where we are significantly out of kilter as a peripheral economy in Europe is we have let our cost base go out of control. That's domestic costs and it's also business costs. And there is no point sticking 25 cents on the minimum wage. It's like sticking an elastoplast on the Okay, Jed Nash, you'd probably say he would say that, wouldn't he? No, I wouldn't at all. Uh, In fact, I find myself in total agreement with Niall in relation to the uh, inability or um, incapacity of government to control, um, for example, utility costs, um, legal costs, Mm. um, the rising cost of insurance that's contributing to uh, the cost of doing business uh, in this country. There's been a marked uh, failure uh, to do that uh, in recent years. And of course, uh, Niall, I think, very appropriately uh, pointed out that um, the reality is that when housing costs uh, increase, as they have done in Ireland in recent years, uh, um, that has a knock-on effect in terms of people's wage demands. And where I find myself at one with ISME and with IBEC and the Small Firms Association is where we you know, need to ensure that we have people for housing. I feel a butt coming on. In Ireland and, and, and um, a massive public house building programme, which this government has failed to deliver. Uh, so I, I, I'm absolutely in agreement with uh, but, uh, on that. No, there, there absolutely is. Okay, no okay. So, so, there's, so, so there's no point in a 25 cent increase then? No, no, no. I mean, the, the reality is, you know, we need to make work pay and ensure that uh, work, there, there are incentives to work and that, that work is attractive for people. And what I mean by that is ensuring that we have uh, decent wages. Uh, and that um, you know people mm. aren't uh, experiencing uh, increases in terms of tax in the USC, and so particularly those at the low, lower and middle income uh, levels. Um, it, it is very difficult for people to manage and people to uh, survive uh, on the way because of the reasons that Niall has pointed out. So there is an onus on government to control costs. We've had this discussion, Michael, on your programme uh, uh, since time immemorial about government controlling costs, about housing and so on, and how, for example, the independent uh, living wage technical group would not have proposed uh, a 10 cent increase on the national living wage kind of concept this year if it were not for the fact that housing costs and transport costs are rising. All right, uh, but uh, if that is uh, the case uh, and that 10 cent would make a, a difference, does that not undermine the argument? Uh, I'll just ask Ian MacDonald to respond to that because I know you need to be elsewhere. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael, I don't get, you know, what you're, well, you're well, saying. Well, Jed Nash is saying that uh, to, to, to have a living wage, you need this 10 cent uh, an hour increase. But let us say, I suppose this is the acid test of, of your question, Michael. If we went to the living wage, or indeed if we went to 13 or 14 or 15 euro an hour for a low-paid worker, they effectively couldn't afford the average rental in any place in Ireland. Uh, so what we're saying is it is much more important. While, while I agree with Jed Matt to the, to, the, to the extent that, yes, an increase in the minimum wage does reduce our, our uh, wage inequality between top and bottom. What it does not do is, is, is allow the low paid or, or those surviving on the minimum wage to have any opportunity to live independently. That, and that's the significant mm. thing that okay. is not been tackled because we are not addressing the cost of living. It is easy 
for legislators to increase the minimum wage. It is hard for them to attack the cost of living. That's why they're doing the former and they're not doing the latter. All right. And uh, if uh, the minimum wage is increased uh, and as uh, Neil Macdonald says Jeb Nash you go up as high as uh, the living wage uh, well then uh, you could find yourself in the situation uh, where you've driven prices up do you accept that argument that by increasing income at the lowest of levels you increase it all the way up uh, through uh, the earnings spectrum uh, and as a result prices increase making it or allowing it to continue as a, an unaffordable situation for those on the lowest of pay? Well, you see, there's a tendency um, often uh, to look at the um, national minimum wage and, ra- and demands for wage increases, kind of in isolation of, of, of costs and the demands that are placed on working families. And I prefer not to do that. And in fact, uh, what I would like to see the government doing is actually looking a little more under the bonnet as to the reasons why the Low Pay Commission has consistently over the last four to five years proposed increases to the national minimum wage and they, they are required to take into account for example under the legislation I brought in um, competitiveness um, the cost of living uh, and so on so uh, I would really prefer and I think it would be in everybody's interest if government got to grips with um, you know affordable and public uh, home building programs uh, got the grips with uh, public transport costs and got the grips with the cost of doing business. Okay. Uh, I think we would live in a much better society if that were the case. We can't just look at wages in isolation. We've got to, got to understand what's driving those wage wage demands. And, uh, you know, I've always believed that work should pay. There's a dignity to work and it's important that work should uh, pay more as well than, than welfare. People should be incentivised to work because uh, when you're working for a living, it's a bit much more than your weekly or monthly paycheck. It's about your contribution to society. Most people want to work. We still have 250,000 uh, jobless households in this country. Okay. That's what we need to try to address uh, okay. over the uh, coming years to ensure right. that everybody has the dignity of work. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, today, both of you, uh, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash and uh, Neil MacDonald, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of ISME. Uh, that's uh, the Irish SME Association. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now, in less uh, than uh, 10 hours' uh, time, MPs will vote in uh, the House of Commons' meaningful vote on Brexit. We are, all of us in the House of Commons, going to have to make a decision this evening. We're going to have to balance a series of risks. If we don't back this new, improved deal tonight, then there are two risks. One is that we may find ourselves... Uh, having Brexit delayed and diluted, and I think that would be a grave error and it would not honour the vote of the 17.4 million people. Um, And there's also another risk, and that risk is of uh, uh, us finding ourselves leaving the European Union without a deal, and that Mm. would undoubtedly cause a degree of economic turbulence that would hit jobs and affect the prosperity of our citizens. The British Secretary of State outlining the importance of uh, the vote tonight. But what's changed? Well, let's hear the argument for voting yes. Here's Michael Gove again. Yes, the European Union have made clear that the backstop is intended to be temporary. And that is clear. It's in black and white. It's a legally binding declaration. And there are three documents that were published last night. And I think it's important that we see 
all of them in the round. The first thing is that there's an, uh, a, a new joint instrument which has equal legal weight to the withdrawal agreement, and that makes clear that the backstop is intended to be temporary. And if it's the case that the EU behaves in a way that uh, uh, suggests that it's seeking to make the backstop permanent, then we can, of course, ensure that uh, uh, we can take steps to uh, end the backstop. Not everybody agrees. The Labour Party has already said it will vote against the proposal, and here's why. The shadow uh, Brexit secretary is uh, the Labour Party MP, Ker Starmer. Well, the central question this morning uh, that everybody's pouring over is, are there any significant changes in the documents that surfaced last night? Um, There are now five documents laid before us for debate today. The withdrawal agreement is exactly the same. The political declaration is exactly the same. There's a new joint statement, a new joint declaration and a unilateral declaration. The most important of those is the joint statement. That's the one the Prime Minister says is legally binding. And what she said last night, John, was this. And this, the three things she pulled out as being the change. Firstly, a power uh, in the UK to suspend temporarily the backstop if they think, if if the arbitration panel finds there's been a breach of the good faith um, requirement. The second thing she pointed to was that there would be no duty to replicate the backstop in any future arrangement. The unfortunate thing for the Prime Minister there is that that was already set out in a letter of the 14th of January and before Parliament last time from Juncker and Tusk. Then the third thing she says is the letter is now legally binding. Again, the unfortunate thing for the Prime Minister is that when she stood up on the 14th of January last time, she said the letter had legal force, her words. She now says it's legally binding. Kerr Starmer and Michael Gove were both speaking to the BBC earlier this morning. Marion Harkin is an independent member of the European Parliament and joins us now. Good morning to you and uh, thanks as always. I suppose uh, to some degree, uh, brief and all as it was, we've heard the arguments for and against. Who's right? Yes, you have indeed. And I'm just here in Strasbourg where there was certainly a bit of high drama and suspense last night. Would she, won't she, etc. But I suspect looking back on it now, Michael, this was planned. It was all choreographed. Uh, Theresa May making a last minute dash to Strasbourg to if you like, extract the last possible uh, ounce of flesh from the EU that she can put before the House Commons because she could not have gone in this evening without some documents uh, to support her case. So three documents, three new ones. Mm. Two of them are agreed. The third one is a unilateral uh, declaration by the United Kingdom. Last night, some of the reports I was hearing, I was concerned um, because of what this unilateral declaration says. But of course, the important point, Michael, is that it's unilateral. In other words, the UK is simply stating its own position, as any country can. Speaking to itself. Uh, Speaking to itself, absolutely. Is Keir Starmer from the Labour Party correct? Yes, he is, in the sense that there is nothing new in the withdrawal agreement. There is, in the other two documents from last night, if you like, a reassurance, a reiteration that the EU will take every possible measure along with the UK in their negotiations to to ensure that the backstop 
is not needed. We would have expected that anyway, but it's, it's perhaps written more clearly and more forcefully and more strongly. In other words, what we call good cooperation, good faith. And then in the letter, and again, it's important to say this is unilateral, UK only, their statement. They say, if there is a breach of this good faith, that the UK takes upon itself uh, the possibility to, it says, disapply its obligations under the protocol, which in very simple language mm. means walk away from the backstop. However, even in that letter, it does say that even if they do that, the proviso is there that they will uphold all their obligations under the Good Friday Agreement. But again, that doesn't really matter because this letter has no legal force. So is it uh, enough for MPs to vote in favour of? It just might be, Michael. And this is only my opinion, nothing more. But think about this. Supposing you were Boris Johnson, perhaps, Mm. or some of those who hope to take over from Theresa May, because I think there's little doubt that maybe even after the summer, or even if there is any Brexit agreement, that Theresa May's days are most definitely numbered. And you could probably count them, (laughs) maybe not on one hand, but you might need too many hands if any agreement is reached. So if the likes of Boris Johnson or others were thinking, right, I'd be Prime Minister in six months' time, in a year's time, and the negotiations are not going as well as I hoped, Uh, I'm going to look very carefully at this Article 5 of the Withdrawal Agreement, and perhaps I may um, decide that um, I will try to uh, use this article to say the UK believes that the EU is not doing its utmost and its best. Uh, and in that case, there is something called an arbitration panel. Mm. Now, that arbitration panel has to agree that that is the case, and then the UK could see itself doing this. But what, what the letter does is it opens a tiny window. Look, it's not legal. But the question is, you have to ask yourself, uh, will that stop? some of those people who see themselves as Prime Minister, uh, leader of the Conservatives in a year's time and six months' time. I'm not sure it will. Maybe it gives them that window. It's not legal, but, you know, mm. do they need it? Yeah, uh, and quite often uh, it's a matter of optics, isn't it? Uh, if you suppose for a moment that they vote in favour of uh, the deal tonight, what does that mean? Uh, is it a question of parking this as an issue for a year, year and a half? Uh, because undoubtedly the United Kingdom will leave the European Union, but then that is the interim period that we enter into in which it's decided and agreed on the terms of how they leave. That's right. Um, So if there is agreement, it's not beyond the bounds. I mean, some people I've spoken to this morning tell me they think that, you know, it could be tight. Maybe it's possible. I have to say others do not feel nearly as positive. But nonetheless, certainly in this parliament, uh, talking to people, I'm not getting a sense that, no, she has no chance. She's definitely going to lose it by 
you know, yeah. a big majority. I'm not hearing that. It may happen, but certainly the feeling here is that it'll be much tighter than that. So, yes, we could find ourselves tomorrow, the next day, with this deal that's on the table. Because remember what President Juncker said yesterday, mm. he's, or last night, he said, when you're given a second chance, you know, you need to take it because there will not be a third chance. So May came here with the rush to Strasbourg. She got very strong words from the EU that they would work with the UK to to get the agreement that would mean we wouldn't need the backstop. And she also got, you know, Juncker saying, this is it. This is the last and the last chance. So that really concentrates minds. Mm. So we could have the situation tomorrow uh, or tonight that there there would be agreement. Okay. Would I bet my house on it? Mm-hmm. No, but maybe it's closer than we thought. But look, mm. all eyes on the DUP. And, mm. it's and Jacob Rees-Mogg, as much as said this morning, it's up to the DUP to decide whether what's agreed on the backstop is agreeable to them or not, and others will follow suit. Uh, but... Uh, if the deal is not endorsed by the House this evening, what then? We're back to where we were, I take it, in that uh, there'll be a vote tomorrow on uh, whether the UK can leave without a, a deal. And uh, assuming a deal is necessary, then there'll be a vote on Thursday for an extension. That's what we're looking at. Um you know, but again, will the vote uh, have legal force in, in regard to no deal? Mm. I, I expect if Theresa May's final proposal goes down, that she she will allow that because she doesn't want a no deal. Actually, nobody wants a no deal at this stage. So um, then we could be looking for an extension. But it has been made fairly clear uh, by many, including the Irish government, that Yes, an extension, no problem with that, but there has to be a reason. It can't be kicking the can down the road, and that's where the real difficulty lies uh, for the UK. So, you see, Michael, if you take all of those things into consideration, um, that might push a lot of people over the line to support this deal in the final analysis, because for many of them, there really is nothing else. Otherwise, they're staring down the barrel of either no deal or no Brexit. And whichever side you're on, either of those issues are enough to frighten you. All right. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining <laughs> Thanks, us. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, as Thanks. always. Independent member of the European Parliament, Marion Harkin. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Friday or on a Tuesday, I beg your pardon for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally, and uh, perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Uh, we're joined by Garda Sharon White of RD Station for the report uh, this week, and we begin with uh, some items stolen in Dundalk. That's right. Good morning, Michael. We're uh, dealing with theft of, uh, from sports ground in Moorhevnamore in Dundalk. It was last Saturday morning while playing football at the pitches at the sports centre in Moorhevnamore and one of the team left a kit bag under a tree beside the pitches there. Uh, unfortunately, after the match, when he went back to retrieve it, the bag had been taken. 
Firstly, we ask anyone who saw anything suspicious last Saturday at about 2pm at the sports centre that they reported to the guards in Dundalk or, in fact, to the management at the sports centre. And secondly, we'd like to remind people to ensure that their valuables are secure because, unfortunately, incidents like this do occur. All right. A burglary in a pub in County Meath next. That's right. In the early hours of last Sunday morning, damage was caused to a store at Harmon's Pub in Rathmaline. Forced entry to the door and uh, thankfully only a small amount of the stock was taken. But we're asking for the public's help. If they were in the area and saw a car or fellas in and around the pub between 4am and 9am last Sunday morning, we'd ask that they contact Summerhill Guard Station. OK, the ongoing problem of uh, dogs worrying sheep uh, to report on next and a specific incident uh, that uh, has come to your attention. That's right. During the week we received a, a report from a farmer who found dogs worrying his sheep on a farm out in Loud Village area. Now, dog owners are asked to ensure that their dogs are secured. It's this time of year, dogs can be found to be worrying sheep, and especially if the dogs are lost or disorientated. Mm, indeed, and killing them on occasion, as we've heard on at least 56 occasions uh, this year, too. Dunshockland next, and some tools that have been stolen. That's right. Actually, about this time last week, uh, Tuesday the 5th of March, between 10.30 and 11, a white Renault Master van was parked at Main Street in Dunshockland. And the driver of the van, he was doing some work very nearby. A male was seen entering and then exiting the van a short time later. And when the owner checked, two power tools, a laser level and a Kango hammer had both been stolen. Maybe you were in Dunshockland at the time. And if so, did you see this happen? All right. And you're trying to locate a quad, I take it. This was stolen in the Nobber area. That's right, from a farmyard there in Nobber. Between Wednesday night and Thursday morning last, the quad bite was taken from a shed actually on a farm in Kilbride in Nobber. The quad was a red Honda quad and it was used throughout the farm. Some neighbours have reported suspicious activity in the area around this time and we're following that up. But we would ask that if anyone else in the area saw anything, that they contact their local guards. And similarly, if you have been offered recently a second-hand red Honda quad, let your local guardian know as this may be the one that was stolen in Nobber. All right. Uh, I'm sure the rightful owner would be uh, all the happier if you did. Uh, we'll go to yes. Betty's town now, uh, where a car was burnt out. That's right. Last Tuesday night, a silver Ford Mondeo had been parked at about 9pm on the Eastham Road in Betty's town, <coughs> and it was actually set on fire there. And Gardy are very interested in this car, where it travelled from, anyone that was seen parking it, and where they went after the car was set on fire. Okay, some burglaries uh, to conclude. Uh, the first of these in Blackrock. That's right. Yeah, Blackrock first. This occurred on Tuesday last between midday and three p.m. So in the af- early afternoon, a rear window was smashed, and although the house was ransacked, nothing of real value was actually taken from the house. The car, however, was taken from the driveway. Were you at home maybe during last Tuesday and you seen anything unusual in your neighbour's house? Guards in Blackrock are investigating this and would love to hear from you. OK, and uh, the second burglary then, uh, we'll conclude with this uh, burglary in Dunboyne. That's right. Uh, finally, Woodview Heights in Dunboyne. This burglary happened in the middle of the night, last Wednesday night, Thursday morning, while the owners actually were upstairs. Having heard a noise, they came down to find that they had been broken into. And obviously, Michael, you can only imagine how upsetting an incident like this would be. If you have any information that could help us solve this crime, we would be really grateful. 
Thank you indeed, Garda Sharon White of our D station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, in the minute or two that we have left with you today, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls uh, that have been coming to us. What have you got for us there, Marie? On Brexit, Damien phoned in and Damien says, Michael, we don't know what way the MPs in Westminster will vote tonight that they've been very unpredictable Mm. so far and it's hard to say what way they're going to react to this and that's the problem. We don't know from one day to the next what is happening. Yeah, well it was the biggest uh, defeat in uh, the uh, history of the British government, 230 votes against the deal last time round. I don't think very much has changed uh, but it's quite possible that it will be passed. Another listener says if Theresa May pulls this off, she's definitely pulled off the coup of the Senate. <laughs> so moving from that then to the nurses talks Jerry phoned in during your interview with Paul Bell from SIP2 to say I'd like to ask that man what can he say about nurses part of the contract that they want them to sign is that okay we'll give you a pay rise but you have to work maybe four hours in one hospital mm. and then travel to another hospital and maybe work four hours in another hospital mm. and these hospitals could be miles apart Michael what do the union representatives have to say about Yeah, well, within a a 40-mile radius, if I remember correctly, and uh, Paul Bell did have a a lot to say about it. I'm not sure if the call came in before Paul Bell made his comments, uh, but they're the same comments he made at the beginning of uh, the month, and SIP2 has uh, serious uh, concerns about uh, that part of the contract. Hillary hopes that the talks will reach a solution. She says the last thing anybody wants is for the nurses to be back on the picket line again. Mm. Yeah, well, it's an interesting position that the INMO finds itself in. Declan was in touch to say that regarding St. Patrick's Day and our ministers going abroad, he thinks it's very important for our ministers to be seen around the world on St. Patrick's Day in terms of selling Ireland and attracting business. He says it's our opportunity to promote the country and what Ireland has to offer. And he doesn't understand why anybody would be criticising ministers because they this is one time where they do have to try and work hard to sell Ireland. Yeah, and so say all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mm. mind going with them. Um, on the story of Lisa Smith, Paula rang in, was listening to the Vox Pop and listening to the coverage uh, on the show yesterday. And she says that what uh, what she's hearing is that uh, Lisa seemed to have been attracted to the more simple life and it's very hard to understand how she could have ended up where she is and she says that uh, you'd wonder if there are others in Ireland that are in that same situation. Okay, well, we'll end today on that thought and thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. That has to be the final word. Our time has run out on us once again. We'll be back uh, tomorrow morning, God willing, with our next programme. That'll be at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie